You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So I think at this point we're going to get started. Uh, my name is Sean Mirsky, and I'm Ashley's co-conspirator on this uh, particular work. Um, this is the last panel of the day for those of you who... There we go. For those of you who haven't um, been here all day, uh, or for those actually of you who have been here all day, thank you very much for your patience, but uh, I assure you it's going to be rewarded. We have two outstanding panelists here today, um, so I'm looking forward to a, a great conversation. Um, before uh, I turn it over to them, I just want to say a quick thank you uh, to Carnegie, not only for hosting this event, but Carnegie was also my intellectual home uh, for well over a year, actually. Um, and the uh, at Carnegie, I was a junior fellow. Um, which basically gives the opportunity for young uh, students out of college to kind of participate in the think tank work. And it's an absolutely amazing program, and the staff here at Carnegie make it even better. Um, so a hearty thank you to uh, Carnegie. Um, and just very briefly, um, a lot of the focus in the volume was on secure, uh, more traditional security issues. Um, but we wanted to include the issue of energy security because while it's somewhat untraditional, it is nevertheless incredibly important in a lot of respects um, for both China, India, and the United States. Um, obviously, it has uh, tremendous economic uh, import uh, for continued growth in both countries, but it also has a, a particular political salience um, as seen by the... Uh, civil disturbances that occasionally arise when there's shortages of fuel um, in both countries, as well as um, broader um, issues uh, relating to um, energy security and the continued um, uh, dominance of the uh, state in both um, countries. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Ja. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Ja Daojong. I teach political science at uh, the School of International Studies, Peking University. My assignment, oh, before that, I thank Carnegie for having me here, um, for involving me in the project late in the afternoon, jet lag. In any case, my assignment to, uh, was to write uh, about a Chinese perspective on energy security. I pretty much followed the guidelines that were given to me, um, the in the oral presentation, I will do three things. One is to highlight a couple of points uh, in my paper. Second is to say a few words about energy in China-India relations. That's not in the paper. Third is to say a few words about energy in China-U.S. relations. Uh, there are so many things that have been said about China and energy, but often we don't pay much attention to the domestic contexts. So in the paper I said energy actually as a matter of everyday governance in China is not that important an issue. Um, if you try to give an order of urgency for the government, by counting, you know, the uh, bureaucracies assigned to deal with this on a daily basis at the ministry level, right? We have a separate ministry for agriculture, for land management, for water management. We don't have a minister, a ministry for energy, and uh, probably we're not going to have one anytime soon. Uh, that's one indication. A, Another indication is that uh, in China, the, chi the Chinese government has seldom published any sort of comprehensive plan or strategic plan about energy uh, policies. Why is that the case? I suppose it has to do with the country's abundance in coal supply and also uh, to develop energy is a good, uh, it's a jet lag effect. Also energy is an area of investment and for both capital gains and also for uh, uh, achieving progress in technology. So one way I characterize China's energy policy is to walk on all different legs, whichever leg is strong enough to support itself. Uh, we develop coal, nuclear power, renewables, and hydropower to, to the extent possible domestically, although uh, 
since 2006, the uh, hydropower development plans have fallen behind the schedule because the costs of resettling the humans are extremely high. If you look at the three gorges, look at the total amount of investment, a full two-thirds of the cost went into resettling the, uh, resettling the affected residents. And on top of that, you have environmental concerns. Now, oil is a concern globally, but uh, if you look at the amount of fuel, refined fuel, that's actually sold in the China market, the annual growth rate is about 3%. So it's not, and we have invested very heavily in the public transportation like the speed, high-speed rails. Uh, I'm not saying fuel or oil is the least important, but somehow uh, it's possible to observe domestically oil is not as such a high priority energy security issue as it's sometimes perceived in the press or outside China in research. Uh, the buzzword in Chinese energy policy making for the uh, 12th five-year plan that's beginning 2013 as we have a new government is revolution in energy. This implies we are going to make, we say we are going to make um, profound changes in the areas of production and the consumption. Uh, one of the changes is to uh, install a total cap in consumption, in the planning, right? And another is to uh, be more rigorous in trying to have the energy intensity targets, energy intensity being the total amount of energy consumed as per unit GDP. Uh, we will try to reform uh, streamline domestic energy prices among the industries and consumers to try to cut out some of the subsidies. As of January 1st, 2013, we finally got rid of government meddling of coal price trade. P prior to that, you know, coal traded within China had anywhere between six to nine different contracts, but now the government is finally out of that. So some progress is being made. I will say one sentence about uh, China's energy and international affairs, then I move on to China and India. Uh, we do invest, China does invite in international investment in developing energy in China, including shale gas. If you look at Chevron, Shell, Total, and ConocoPhillips, they're all busy trying to uh, strike a finding in um, China. That's just one of the latest examples. We also invest abroad. And uh, although somehow uh, a debate is creeping in about over the relative costs and the benefits of investing abroad versus purchasing from in the uh, international market. I assume later on during the Q&A you will have more questions about energy, uh, China's energy and its international relations. But let me quickly move on to energy in China-India relations. Uh, the first point to note is uh, there is too little reliable literature about how China and India are relating to each other in the field of energy, in trade or investment, and much of this is, uh, much of what's written, either in academic writings or policy writings or media is purely, should I say, uh, ahistorical in the sense, it always begins with this notion that the two are, are competing because they are energy dependent on imports. But what I'm trying to say is we don't really have a solid base for discussing of knowledge, China and India relations. That's why, we, but there are some headline making developments that permeate discussions about energy in China, India relations. One of course is water, what China does in upstream Tibet and how it affects the Brahmaputra. Uh, but here again, we, you need to, um, one way to have a sensible discussion is to figure out the percentage of discharge that flows out of Tibet into the Brahmaputra. Um, 
some Chinese statistics say it's 14%. Um, just to give you uh, an idea, between China and the Southeast Asian countries over the Lantang and the Mekong rivers, there is fairly good consensus that the total amount of water flowing out of China as measured by you know, the amount of water as it enters the ocean in Vietnam, that percentage contribution from China is 18%. So sometimes those basic measurements matter. Second uh, topic that often permeates discussions about China and India is the sea lanes, the Indian Ocean, Straits of Malacca, or uh, Straits of Hormuz. Uh, much of this is rhetorical, should I say, and of people often forget to note China and India happily cooperate in a scheme that's centered around Singapore on piracy. It's an initiative that uh, uh, emerged out of a Japanese initiative, uh, I mean a proposal, and it's been working quite well. I just edited, uh, in my edited book, there is a, a chapter devoted to how this mechanism is working, written by uh, the director of research of this center. So things are not all that bad. Uh, last but not least, China and India are somehow in the same bed when we approach international climate change. But, okay, <laughs> these, these are bullet points. I uh, do note I have five minutes left. Now, energy in U.S.-China relations. China and the United States have a very rich history of cooperation and collaboration in energy development. A usual way to, to characterize this is since uh, 1978, that's actually uh, less than four months after the establishment of the Department of Energy in the United States. Asher Schlesinger visited China that was reciprocated by uh, uh, the Chinese energy minister of the day, uh, ever since then, we have had 30 years of nonstop cooperation and collaboration, which will result in the form of 34 government-sponsored cooperation uh, framework agreements, which has resulted in over 30,000 projects. So it's possible to characterize this cooperation in three phases. In the beginning, this was American support for improving basic science in China in relation to energy. And then later on, this moved into American support for the investment for developing fossil fuel in China. Uh, if you look at China's uh, oil sector, coal sector, just about anything. The Three Gorges was an exception uh, because the World Bank did not finance partly because People sometimes overplay that. There is so extensive American involvement in the Chinese energy sector, sometimes we need to start writing a history book about it. And then moving on to the third phase that began in the second Bush administration and uh, was carried on you know, with full speed during the Obama administration is U.S. and China work on clean energy and uh, biofuel development. So... One way to characterize the relationship, the nature of the relationship between China and the United States is the U.S. works to enable China to enhance its capacity to supply itself. And the best example, in addition to what I just said, is the, uh, the uh, Bush, uh, Bush Jr. administration's decision to transfer the entire package of te technology for the Westinghouse design of AP-1000. That's a third-generation nuclear power generation uh, generator, and it's going to be the mainstream for China's nuclear power projects. So there are a lot of positive things going on, and, uh, and China happily obliged. Although there is no free lunch in the more recent years, the two countries, of course, argue over intellectual property rights and... Uh, there are also legitimate concerns in the U.S. Uh, about Chinese competition in some of their technologies, including renewable energy. Now, I want to advocate a new agenda for U.S.-China uh, relations in energy. The new agenda ought to be we start, the two countries ought to start to promote energy trade. This does mean 
you know, China buying more of U.S. coal, and we should start importing LNG from the United States, and even possibly oil. Uh, there are some issues to manage in the relationship between China and the United States, principally uh, as has been permeating the discussion of the day, maritime issues that have sometimes real, sometimes perceived <coughs> energy connections. Last but not least, there are some issues on the horizon, such as security in the Middle East and uh, developing the Arctic region. So on that note, I should... Uh, stop boring you, partly because of the jet lag and bad voice. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Professor Zhao, for that, uh, uh, I think, excellent introduction. And... Uh, I'll take lead from the structure of your presentation. I'll very briefly, first of all, draw out the main thesis which is in the paper before you, and then try and talk of the larger issue of energy in the global context and in Indo-China relationships. Mm. Professor Zhao said very clearly that you know, China has uh, a very small bureaucracy managing energy. I have been an energy bureaucrat in India, and we have a huge bureaucracy managing energy. So if the size of the bureaucracy is any indication as to how important a sector is for the economy, energy is very important for India. The problem is that we do not have one ministry, we have five. And they each work against each other. And so when we talk of energy policies, energy security in the Indian context, it makes far more sense to talk of energy policies rather than energy policy. So the Indian energy security debate, and there are documents upon documents upon it, the Planning Commission has written repeatedly about it, continues to oscillate between you know, two very contradictory pulls. The first poll is, the first debate says that energy security means, and they say it simultaneously, energy security means providing everybody affordable energy. And then it also says, it means providing affordable energy at competitive pricing. Now, how, how the hell does one solve that? Okay. So that is the basic dilemma that the whole analysis, the, the whole concept of energy security faces in India. And the, what the paper really does, what I've written is, it's just trying to show that all long-term, I will not go into the details of the statistics, the figures of the energy mix, but just a plain and simple thesis is that all long-term demographic and economic trends just serve to highlight these very contradictory pulls. One demands that you have to be very efficient in the allocation of resources and have to go in through competitive market-based routes to allocate resources across the spectrum. But then the other forces the state to repeatedly intervene with price controls in the effort to improve access, access of energy to all. And the result is uh, that today energy and energy-related subsidies form a whopping and unsustainable 2% of the gross domestic product. So, with various, within the energy administration divided across various groups, what really happens is that you have a set of diverse stakeholders who seek the accommodation of very varying and often conflicting interests within this very omnibus statement which tries to uh, define what energy security means for India. But given the very high degree of import dependence, India is you know, dependent up to, just for its own needs, 75% of its oil has to be imported. The actual oil imports are far higher because uh, some people are surprised when I tell them. India also is one of the largest exporters of petroleum products. 
So a lot of imports come into India to be value-added as petroleum products and get exported out. And petroleum products today uh, are the single biggest export going out of India. So with this huge amount of energy imports, and this is not just oil, we're also talking about gas. We're also talking about coal now. Price controls act, you know, as extremely detrimental to either attracting investments or technology in developing the country's own domestic resources, or even in setting up the infrastructure for facilitating large-scale imports, whether you're talking about capacities in ports, whether you're talking about capacities in LNG import infrastructure. So both get constricted by the same pursuit of this very contradictory goal in energy policy. But, you know, talking of the larger picture now, moving out from this basic thesis of the paper, two things which have been dominating the world in the last few years, one, of course, is the economic crisis, and the other, which we've been talking about, emerging Asia and the rapid growth of India and China, and uh, very much apparent, of course, in the way uh, the energy demand from these two countries has surged in the last few years. 2008, the crisis struck, and 2009 was perhaps the first year after the end of the Second World War, when global GDP contracted for the first time. Would have contracted for the first time, because in only 20 countries of the world, you saw positive growth. But in spite of the slowdown, global GDP still rose, and it rose only because of growth still occurring in these little islands, the most prominent amongst them being China and India. And energy consumption actually again would have fallen across the world, except for exactly what happened in these two countries. 2011 also reflected the same kind of a picture. In many ways, the crisis was a great leveler. Now, for once, it also exposed that irrespective of the size of the GDP of countries, it is actually the limited room to maneuver available in the domestic policy-making space that defines the stand countries are going to take in long-term strategic engagements or decisions concerning each other, whether they're on climate change, whether they're on any other issues. And as the global crisis has shown us, see, energy prices today have become center stage right across the world. I was, uh, when I was flying down, I had occasion to read you know, a recently released report by two prominent uh, European agencies, Orgeline and Cement. And uh, they, you know, they represent, it's a trade association representing, I think, 200,000 manufacturing companies in Europe. And they fairly and squarely you know, point out that it is the EU's energy and climate policies which need to be realigned with economic realities. Actually, the impact of the EU's carbon reduction strategies was hardly the big culprit. The big culprit was right here. The availability of huge supplies of cheap gas in the United States. That was the main reason for this big complaint originating in Europe. And European manufacturers were claiming that they pay nearly twice as much for electricity and nearly three times as much for gas as the U.S. counterparts. Now, that is, again, a refrain when you talk of pricing, and we can try to analyze the dilemma which countries like India and China face. It's, it's a dilemma which economies trying to confront the issue of creating employment, creating enough jobs, face on a day-to-day -day basis. But you see, more significantly, what the U.S. experience has shown, and has shown the world, that energy prices and supplies do not really respond so much to policy fiat. What they respond to is innovation fueled by competitive markets. And the answer has to be in allowing these kinds of markets to operate freely. Now, today, everybody is talking about, we heard about exports, uh, no, U.S. allowing exports of gas and oil into China. Suddenly, the whole world has changed. 
the fact is in the coming years yes india and china will continue to lead the surge in demand for energy across the world and the news on the domestic availability of energy in both countries is not very good coal production in india is stagnating china in spite of having huge reserves is in the market for importing ever greater quantities of coal uh estimates some time ago would be that you know in a few years time just india and china between them would require about a billion additional tons of coal now where does all that come from who's investing in coal assist to the extent to create supplies for these two countries so the immediate reaction would be on coal prices and that was thought to be true for a very long time until shale gas changes the picture and you see coal prices actually dropping in the last two years and not only that you know the, the europe which was actually the ayatollah of climate change suddenly shows an increasing appetite for nasty coal in the in, in last year it actually ended up burning far more coal and substituting natural gas for coal so what this whole thing shows is the inherent interrelatedness of energy markets exports of energy from the us in many ways have already started but it has not started going out as coal it has started going out as gas it has not started going out as gas it started going out as coal a few years later they may start going out first as petrochemicals or something else so in the commodity market all these products are inextricably linked to each other and that is something which going forward i think countries like india and china are realizing the hard way that is a very very clear message which is going down to policy makers uh, professor zaujo told us that china has moved to liberalize its coal prices in the last one year china has moved very rapidly to liberalize gas prices because it wants to attract massive investments into shale gas india is moving a bit more slowly but as far as the larger picture is concerned it is not a question of if it is a question of when when do these changes at what point of time they take place see resource nationalism is a very good populist idea and keeps on throwing up its ugly head in many countries from time to time it's very populist to say all the natural resources belong to the nation and in a way this whole you know debate on energy security the question of energy security the securitization of the debate about energy has been responsible for encouraging tendencies in many countries to bring the energy sector in under greater and greater government control whereas the fact is that the biggest threat to energy security in any country has not ever occurred from what happens in the middle east what happens in any other part of the world the biggest threat to energy security always has been regulatory and policy uncertainty in the home country we have seen it in the usa the california gas crisis we see we saw it a few months ago in the biggest blackout in the history of the world in india and you know, 600 million people without power for two days so the imperatives are very clear the writing is very apparent on the wall and yet within the policy space across consuming asia it's not just india it is that entire consuming asia which is which is the, which is emerging as largest consumer we see the same two rival tendencies confronting policy makers at the same time which on the one hand stress for resource nationalism on the other hand they impinge upon them to liberalize open out markets get on to a space where you can let greater competition prevail so in india also we are seeing definite signs of movement in both directions india knows that it has to enter into very large volume of gas contracts in the next few years and you have two recent documents coming out one from the planning commission other on pricing reforms by the rangarajan committee which those saying laying down very different time frames are again talking of the same thing that energy prices 
have to move up in tandem with the market. Now, let us imagine a scenario where, given these pressures and the, and the resource constraints are very, very real across the region. As I said, with subsidies accounting for 2% of the GDP, they, they are becoming unaffordable. The good thing about, the positive thing about moving towards market-related prices would be that you would probably see greater integration across markets themselves in the region. And neighbors in Asia would probably learn to trade more with each other. Already, you see, the good thing about countries like India is that there is a very strong, vibrant private sector, which has survived in spite of everything the government has done or not done. It has been vibrant. It has used you know, political impulses to its own ends and survived the worst situations. Today, you have private sector companies in India. Uh, Professor Zawa was talking about cooperation between India and China. Chinese companies are very popular, are, are the first choice for power companies when they want to import turbines into India. So much so that Indian manufacturing companies start lobbying against the Chinese companies trying to sell goods into India. So they want barriers erected. So you have these two lobbies within India confronting each other and trying to shape policies within the country as to which way energy policies are going to move. Similarly, with flow of finance. For a long time, the security community within India, the strategic community within India, felt very strongly, oh, it, it's not a very good idea to be borrowing from China. And yet, when a major power company required a loan, and the Exim Bank in the U.S. did not give it a loan because it was a coal-based plant they were talking about, the solution was China. And within a short time, the Indian government had to liberalize and allow loans from China into India. So these, these are the kinds of imperatives, and you see the writing very clearly on the wall. We keep talking about the Brahmaputra and water disputes. Someone in a recent conference from China was suggesting a very different paradigm. Okay, supposing 10 years down the line, you have more competitive energy markets in the region, why cannot China build dams in Brahmaputra and supply power to India? So these are debates which are taking place within, the, within companies, you know, within players in the energy sector on both sides across and across the region. There are similar ideas being expressed between India and Pakistan. And there is a lot of traction on that front as well. But the bigger question, you know, which still remains is, what does one do with this very vexed question of subsidies? How in the short to medium term one addresses the question of access to energy when you are talking about 400 million people without access to any kind of electricity at all. In perhaps such a scenario, it would be futile for anyone to wish subsidies away overnight. Subsidies would probably remain. But what the Indian government is recognizing is that perhaps you have to find better ways of administering those subsidies so that they do not interfere with the operation of the market. Subsidies administered through price controls eventually have to go. And the faster they go, the better it is. So the jury is still out on this huge scheme which the government has recently announced, which is uh, direct cash transfers and subsidy allocations through the unique identification card which is being allocated to people, the Aadhaar scheme, uh, which I think is the biggest of its kind ever undertaken anywhere in the world, which hopes to use technology solutions to find answers to this straight, you know, strange question of subsidies. But the biggest challenge which is going to be in implementing these schemes is that any subsidy given also creates the means for its own perpetuation. There would be existing a large number of stakeholders who derive enormous rents, they derive benefits from the present modes in which subsidies are administered. 
and they are going to be the biggest agents resisting the process of change. So we come down again to the role of national energy companies and their role in the energy administration structure. A few years ago, when India and China started acquiring oil and gas assets abroad, the big question was, oh, this is a great rush for resources which is happening across the world. Was it true? I don't think so. When you look at the operations of these energy companies, I do not, I do not know about China, but within India, I think the national energy companies were operating like any other pragmatic private sector company. They were shielding their revenue flows from appropriation by the state as dividends or as discounts or as subsidies. So they found it much more worthwhile sometimes to invest as riskier assets abroad rather than invest at home. So you, they, uh, the, uh, there was a minister, energy minister, a few years ago who kept on saying that why are these companies going out and investing such huge amounts abroad? Why can't that capital be used for investing in India's energy security? And there was the answer. It, the returns were far higher or far safer investing abroad. India and Chinese companies have cooperated. They have cooperated in areas where Look, look at the countries where they've cooperated. Syria, they've cooperated in countries like Sudan, where they felt like any other pragmatic company that perhaps this was the best hedge against possible international sanctions arising sometime into the future. So, this is the larger context in which we need to understand the debate and the dilemma which faces not just India, but countries in the entire region. And to conclude, my only message is that given the very, very tight resource constraints, the writing on the wall for all these countries is very clear. Bangladesh today is also facing fewer riots. But the same kind of pressures are prevailing there. There are pressures within the Indian government with these very high current account deficits to find ways, perhaps, to the launch of these schemes like Aadhaar, to transfer subsidies from the present system for administration, keep a lid on the kettle from boiling over, and move towards market-determined prices. So those changes, I think, are going to be inevitable in the near future, and there the opportunities are immense for everybody. Thank you. I'd really like to thank both um, panelists for really, I think, highlighting one of the key themes that you see in the field of energy security. Um, and it, that's a story of surprise. Um, oftentimes the rhetoric that you see in the media, um, as well as even in scholarly articles, often is a lot harsher and masks an underlying reality of a lot of convergence, not only between China and India, but also between China, India, and the United States. Um, so. I'm going to uh, focus my remarks on sort of examining sort of this, uh, this divergence between what is actually said and what is often the reality of the international um, energy order. I'm not going to touch on issues such as Iran and the South China Sea and a few of the more controversial energy security things, um, not because I don't think that's going to make for a great uh, question and answer, um, but for now I'm going to focus kind of more on the theme of the volume, which is the uh, global order itself. Um, the story starts in a sense with um, immediately in the aftermath of World War II uh, when the United States along with its allies helped shape a new world order. Um, and part of that was an international economic order that sought to harness the power of the free market um, to basically uh, expand trade across the globe. Um, and again, a key component of this was energy. The idea was that by using a free market energy system across the world, you would be able to um, provide cheap energy to all countries without any discrimination in access. Um, in large part, the key to the system was having uh, freedom of the seas. Um, and the underlying uh, uh, necessity for that, uh, for that factor was um, American naval power. And so through its navy, the United States was able to guarantee uh, freedom of the seas, which then led to an international energy order that lasts to this day. Um, and I would argue that this project um, has largely succeeded at an economic level, um, but its political components are still being debated today. 
And when I say that it's succeeded at an economic level for the most part, um, I'm obviously not uh, speaking in terms of stability of price. Uh, anyone who's been to a gas station recently knows that uh, prices are neither particularly low nor particularly stable. Um, instead, I'm speaking more in terms of access. Um, and ironically, this point I think is best exemplified through the, 19, uh, the two embargoes in the 1970s by OPEC and um, much of the uh, Arab world of oil. Um, in a sense, those embargoes at some level were, were meant to deprive the West of oil. Um, but they were, in that respect, completely unsuccessful. What happened was that many nations, the nations that had, or the nations that had previously purchased oil from other sources, then began purchasing oil from uh, OPEC. And the original oil providers that had been providing oil to those original nations now started selling to the West. So instead of anyone losing access to energy, what simply happened was that the oil got moved around. And while this created incredibly high costs of that oil, it didn't in a sense change anything about the ability of nations to access that oil. Um, of course, it's not to say that there weren't oil shortages in the United States at the time. There certainly were. But if you look back at the record, it's fairly clear that those shortages emerged from domestic policies that were put in place by the U.S. government. And however well-intended they were, they ultimately led to, again, shortages across uh, the nation as well as still high prices. The story, I think, is relevant, particularly when looking at China and India, in large part because there's, again, kind of a similar experience. And I think both panelists touched on this when they pointed towards the domestic context of a lot of the energy policies uh, and their effects on um, energy security within the nations, again, most recently with the Indian blackout. Um, neither country has experienced significant uh, difficulty in buying oil from the international market, or any uh, energy, I should say. But... Um, both have nevertheless experienced energy shortages, again, because of a largely uh, Byzantine and complicated domestic policies that often do not serve the um, ultimate end that they seek to achieve. Um, and that's regardless of whether there's no energy ministry or too many energy ministries. Um, so in that respect, I think the international uh, energy order has largely succeeded at an economic level. However, um, I mentioned originally that the... Uh, system has been less successful politically. Um, and you see this, again, both in China and India and in the United States. In China and India, um, as both panelists uh, mentioned, despite the relative access of uh, um, access security that's provided by the energy order, you nevertheless see um, the Indian and Chinese uh, national energy companies being uh, subsidized and in other ways supported by the government in a way that often... Um, seems to contravene what most of us would see as a free market system. Um, again, this is another example of sort of the uh, rhetoric um, masking the underlying reality, because many uh, articles, especially in the U.S., will criticize China and India on this basis, when the reality is that many of these measures, uh, including, for instance, uh, subsidies to the national energy companies, are actually a net benefit to the United States as well as other, um, other energy consumers. Um, while it's true that subsidizing, uh, for instance, Chinese energy companies does um, adversely impact American energy companies, the net result is actually that that subsidy, in fact, subsidizes the entire international energy order. And as a result, energy is cheaper for all consumers. Um, so why do we see this divergence between, in a sense, what makes sense economically and what the states in uh, not only China and India but also the United States seem to follow? Um, and largely, it's a continual skepticism of the international energy order and its free market basis um, that's fueled by the importance of energy. Energy is not seen like other commodities. It's a strategic uh, commodity that's tightly linked to, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning of um, the panel, both economic and political power. So as a result, across the board, you see, at best, a half-hearted political commitment um, and continued concerns in all three nations about the uh, energy um, policies as well as the overall um, security of the international energy order. Um, and, you know, examples abound, whether we go back to um, 2005 when Congress blocked uh, one of the Chinese uh, national oil companies' purchase of Unocal, or even more recent examples when some... Uh, commentators have raised concerns about Chinese uh, national oil companies' investment in Afghanistan. Um, these concerns also obviously have a security component. As I think both panelists mentioned, we have um, both China and India, and of course the United States as well, have expressed concern about the sea lines of communication. 
Um, and to some extent, this concern has fueled uh, naval modernization in all three countries, although the exact extent to which that is true is obviously debatable. Um, so in the end, you see this awkward tension where the national energy companies themselves are often more motivated by commercial reasons than national security imperatives. Yet nevertheless, you have a lot of state pressure at times to act in a way that uh, supports ultimately state interests. Um, and this tension within the international energy order is further complicated by additional constraints, particularly in the case of China and India. Um, in Besides having to deal with kind of this tension, both countries also have to work to allay American concerns about their own uh, actions. So um, if you look at, for instance, the Chinese oil company's investment strategy post-2005, when they were rejected essentially by Congress, um, it's been much more cautious and much more uh, circuitous precisely for that reason, uh, and also, one might add, uh, much more successful. Um, so those additional kind of political concerns really start uh, seeping into the market and the way it functions um, and politicizing, in a sense, the oil industry itself. Um, and so I want to conclude just briefly by highlighting, uh, specifically in the case of China, what I see as a particularly difficult dilemma um, for China's energy leaders. On the one hand, China has benefited tremendously, as has India and the United States itself, um, from the open international energy order. Um, but this order is upheld at its core by American naval power. And that same American naval power that upholds the international energy order also makes China, or at least some in China, nervous um, about its potential to cut off China from energy sources. Um, so that tension is further complicated by the fact that any moves by China to ameliorate this problem by expanding its own navy obviously create uh, a rebound effect that makes the United States even more nervous. So even though the energy market, in a sense, should be um, free of any political influences, the end reality is that it's incredibly permeated at every level through considerations, both with uh, political considerations, both at the level of energy itself and the larger uh, political context of the uh, international system. Um, and with that, I'll conclude my remarks. Um, at this point, uh, we're going to open the floor to questions. Uh, please remember to introduce yourself, and uh, one of the uh, assistants on the side will provide you with a microphone. Don't be shy. Uh, yes, in the back. Um, Stanley Cobra. Um, on this American naval power, who is the threat? I and mean, we've had wars in Korea, Vietnam. Soviets in Afghanistan, we've been in Afghanistan, has there been any naval conflict threatening this trade other than piracy? Uh, at a very practical level, no. And I mean, that's one of, this is one of those broader, broader um, theoretical arguments, I think, in the literature. Um, but if you look back, for instance, uh, centuries ago, and admittedly, it's a pretty historical example, but um, the international maritime order was ultimately... Um, I mean, it was ex extraordinarily mercantilist in the sense that all navies protected their own shipping and there was no really idea of an international maritime order in and of itself. Um, so same as American uh, military power upholds um, freedom of a variety of global commons, um, its impact in the uh, maritime sphere is, in a sense, largely deterrence and to that end is um, invisible. But yeah, at a very practical level, the most um, salient kind of concern about freedom of the seas at this point is uh, piracy, um, to which, you know, it's, it's not um, a significant problem by any means in terms of uh, the free trade of energy. Any additional thoughts? Professor Zal mentioned that India and China are coming together uh, as far as piracy control measures are concerned. Uh, the two navies, uh, which were not even talking to each other a few years ago, have started engaging in exercises to control piracy in that area. So there is some kind of coming together of you know, two navies which were originally just they had locked each other out completely. Yeah, and one of the, I think, key kind of issues going forward is to what extent the um, American-upheld uh, international energy order can be replaced by a more uh, collective security measures. Um, and I think that's the direction that certainly both India and China uh, want to move towards. Uh, further questions? <laughs> Thank you. I'm Jean Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. You have said that you don't want to talk about the South China Sea, but I, 
I'm not bringing it back. <laughs> but based on um, the consensus that India and China and the U.S. can work together somehow on the energy level. Um, so is there a way that you've talked about an international pool of like oil so that it, the, the thinking of joint venture into all the uh, resource uh, internationally. So is there a way that we can talk about global system? But first we have to put down the rule, the global rule of law. So I'm asking if you think China can observe, can honor the rule of law, global rule of law. The global international community rule of law. Because that has a lot to do with everything else. And I, I want to make a point of Sean that I don't think the um, encroaching on other neighbors' sovereignties, maritime sovereignties that China is now acting upon has only to do with oil or energy. It has a lot to do with many other things that we've been covering, economy and uh, space and many other things too, even nuclear. So. Yeah, that's just my point. So then there's a global rule of law that has to be established to cover all of those areas. And what is the potential expectation that we think China can cooperate? Well, we, uh, China and uh, Vietnam are two great civilizations. We have uh, had uh, several hundreds of years of interacting with each other, sometimes amicably, sometimes not so much. But at the end of the day, what we call Yunnan, south of the border, is our neighbor. We need to get along. Now, with regard to oil and gas in the South China Sea, the first point to remember is nobody, nobody knows affirmatively how much of an oil and gas potential there is, either by geology or by technologically recoverable or commercially recoverable. Uh, when you talk about oil and gas, there's something called hydrocarbons then you need to look at the basins that are hydrocarbon ready. Much of the South China Sea is the crust of the earth. That's over 80% of the ocean. So we often inflate, we often inflate the South China Sea as an oil or gas reserve. The 1948 study done by a team of UN specialists, you have to go back to the circumstances how those folks conducted the so-called survey. A team, you know, they, and let's face it, seismic technology those days was two-dimensional, now it's three-dimensional, it's four-dimensional seismic survey. Now, another point uh, about this is, uh, I understand sometimes it's not diplomatic for a fellow from China, although uh, not representing any government agency to constantly remind our neighbors that there was a history. If you remember from 2005 to 2007, there was an agreement in place initiated first between China and the Philippines, the national oil companies, later Vietnam because it first protested, later it joined, to conduct a joint seismic survey just to figure out how much oil or gas there is in disputed areas. Now, you go back to check what happened to that agreement. Who were the ones that said, let's throw it out? So, uh, with regard to this, what you said about the oil fields, I do believe what you're specifically referring to two blocks. One, uh, in what you, in, in Vietnam, it's called the Blue Dragon Bay, what we call in Wanhan. This is not new. It goes as far back as the 1980s. And a US-based company that was from Colorado called Crestone is in here. So what I'm trying to say is there are ways to work at this, to contain this, but uh, another way to think about this is I didn't mention this uh, neighborship, neighboring a relationship as some sort of nicety. If you look at the, the ADB development plans for the greater Mekong region, both China and Vietnam are parties of it. If, if you look at uh, uh, what we call the Yuanjiang and what you call the Red River systems, 
and you look at the supply of electricity from Guangxi to the uh, national power grid company of Vietnam. There are lots of things we can do. What, what's necessary is to manage disputes, to contain disputes. We can never resolve it. it uh, I think we're going to cut off. We don't want to do a back and forth. Um, Sandra, could you actually um, elucidate India's position kind of within the South China Sea dispute? Because I know it's um, recently gotten a little bit more involved. Uh, ONGC, that is the Indian National Oil Company, had a bid for a few blocks, and it had it was holding two blocks in the, in the dis so-called disputed area of uh, Vietnam. As far as the National Oil Company's own position is concerned, you know, it, it was an investment it made on commercial considerations in Vietnam. It was an issue which required resolving between Vietnam and China. It was not something which necessarily the Indian government needed to or needs to step into to resolve the dispute. And that remains the position. I mean, sorry, I think it would be more useful if you could pursue this conversation after the panel is over. I mean, <laughs> you can take that up with him after the... I'm sorry. I, I think that this would better be pursued afterwards. Um, do we have any other questions from the audience at this point? Uh, all right. Oh, yeah? Please? I have a sort of a parochial question. There's been a lot of debate and controversy in the last few years about some big China, Chinese energy projects in my favorite country, Burma, um, <clears throat> both hydropower and pipeline that will bring oil and gas up to uh, China from the uh, Bay of Bengal. Um, are these considered strategic in China, or has it got more to do with a relationship with Burma than it does with China's energy supply? Uh, the... When you talk about China and the Burma, the pipelines, you have to separate the gas from the oil. Uh, the gas pipeline is, well, you have only ways, two ways of selling Burmese gas. One is through pipeline, another is liquefy that. And the gas pipeline is a joint venture. I believe the Chinese has 51% ownership. The rest is Korean, Indian, and the Myanmar's investment. People often don't mention it's a joint venture uh, for the pipeline. Now, the oil pipeline is sold, let me underline the word sold as a, a geostrategic project, the so-called, you know, afraid of U.S. Navy, cutting off a Chinese supply. But then you have to, I wrote about this, actually you can easily search it online. You have to look at where the pipeline, oil pipeline ends and how Yunnan uh, the Kunming used to, uh, is still actually at this point of time, getting its refined oil. It's extremely expensive and uh, unreliable way of trucking the uh, oil from Guangdong, Maoming, because the, in Yunnan you don't have local uh, fields, oil fields, you don't have uh, local refineries. So when you look at the ownership structure of the refinery in Yunnan, Yunnan province invests a lot in this. It's, you know, big projects, good money, and it helps to uh, uh, generate employment. And I have not seen accurate uh, data about it, how, whether this is more energy economic, uh, whether it makes real energy economic, certainly makes sense for local governments to support it. And after the gas pipeline crosses really into uh, Yunnan province, you have two spurs. One is going to go to Guizhou, the other is going to eventually go to Chongqing. Very much like the Central Asia pipeline from uh, Turkmenistan, eventually to Guangzhou and Hong Kong and uh, you know Shanghai. We have smaller pots of gas within China, which would not otherwise justify constructing a pipeline. So um, I would say there are both rations, but the gas pipeline is purely uh, a way to get gas. 
the oil pipeline is, was sold as strategic. Now, with regard to your question about hydropower investment, this, this is on record. So one major reason for Chinese hydropower companies to go abroad, not just to Myanmar, but also to Africa, was the slowdown of construction at home. Like I said, since 2006, government plans for developing hydro plant power was never implemented, precisely for the exactly the same reasons abroad. It's expensive to compensate the locals, and locals are not happy. They protest, the NGOs, and uh, so these companies, you know, you have a past dependency in terms of engineers, in terms of uh, the equipment makers. They push themselves overseas, and of course you can always justify this as a part of uh, central government economic diplomacy. Uh, I happen to work very extensively on the management of the Lantang and the Mekong River system, including the uh, Nujiang, the uh, Saoling, and also Irrawaddy systems. Uh, what do we do? One thing that seems to be working, let me uh, characterize this very carefully. We are formally a member of MIGA, the Multinational Investment Guarantee Agency of the World Bank. And uh, the export and import bank of China is importing what's called green uh, credits, loans project. That's in collaboration with World Bank as well. But you try to control this at the stage of uh, giving out credits and you require these companies to do the social uh, environmental assessment checks and the social responsibility checks to do the promise. I do believe the papers that require to fill out are 86 pages long. And sometimes, you know, the company just hires some wise college kids to tick off the uh, boxes. That happens. Um, that's where you go. <laughs> That's what's happening. They have, you know, on paperwork trail, everything is in place. But we do need to learn to uh, encourage Chinese companies to do several things. One is to pursue higher degrees of localization, which means you contract out jobs to local companies, local residents. Second is you train and employ local workers. And third is probably... Uh, to find a new ways of compensating the locals uh, rather than giving them a one-time settlement, resettlement fee, you try to let them have a share in your project. Now, last but not least, yes, yes last but not least, uh, we need to think about, especially in doing these mega hydro projects in the region, very much like what he said, um, not just importing this electricity from, let's say, really, uh, let's say, really Jiang, that's in the Burma to China, or from Laos to China. We ought to be thinking about uh, supplying some of the electricity generated in China and across the border to uh, the neighboring countries. But in the end, you know, you can never win because you are China. And when you start to supply electricity to those smaller countries, people say, ah, you are doing economic imperialism, you are trying to control them. <laughs> um, what do you do? You try your best. <laughs> sorry, and I, it went too, too long. No, no, and I think that's a great place to stop, actually. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Um, I just want to thank, uh, once again, both panelists for such a comprehensive look at uh, the energy security of uh, two nations. That was truly an intellectual tour to the force. So, round of applause. Before I turn it over to Ashley for, I presume, a conclusion, uh, I just want to say thank him specifically uh, at a personal level. Um, when I was applying to the Junior Fellows Program and I got accepted, I asked my friends around D.C., uh, you know, what, what they knew about Ashley. Um, and I heard, obviously, that, you know, he was top scholar, the best analysis in the entire town. And, of course, that's all true. And, of course, you all know that. Um, but I also heard something that's far far rarer in D.C., and in fact, I didn't even think existed until I met Ashley, which is that he's a genuinely nice and kind guy. Um, 
which in a town like DC is, like I said, a rare thing. Um, so uh, echoing what Jessica said, thank you not only for your public service, but also so much for um, your mentorship and guidance. Thank you, Shah. That, is, that uh, introduction is going to cost me dearly. <laughs> but I, I, I want to just take two minutes of your time. I want to thank all of you for having survived the day's proceedings. This has been a very long day. And for all of you to give us uh, you know, the time, which you have so many other things that you could be doing, is something that's obviously very important to us because this is the business that we are in. I want to thank you for staying the course, for being with us throughout the day. And I hope we will be able to see you again at some other event at the endowment. I also want to take the opportunity to thank very specially the contributors to the volume because they put in a lot of effort over a six-month period quite intensively in terms of doing revisions and rewrites. And I think the end product has been actually quite remarkable. And finally, I just want to thank Sean, because we would not have been able to get it out uh, on the schedule that we had set out to uh, without, without his intervention. So thank you, Sean. Thank you, all of you, once again. And I look forward to seeing you back here at some point in the not-too-distant future. Good evening. <laughs>